0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 15 of Edward the First by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11 the years of crisis 1293 to 1297 part 1 while edward was successfully establishing his feudal supremacy over scotland fresh troubles were brewing between him and his overlord philip the fair who availed himself of a series of petty quarrels between french and gascon seamen to press severely against the English king the same claims of superiority which Edward was now exercising over King John of Scotland. In the thirteenth century there was no hard and fast line between lawful trade and piracy. The narrow seas swarmed with robber craft, and even in the most peaceful times seamen and merchants found in the sword— the readiest means of satisfying their local rivalries and commercial jealousies. In the course of 1292, the chronic hostility of the Norman and Gascon sailors had assumed a new and fiercer aspect. The Bretons, Flemings, and other seafaring partisans of the French king backed up the Norman subjects of Philip while the English and Irish sailors, conspicuous among the former being the men of the sink ports, lent their aid to the Gascon subjects of Edward. Ships were loaded, says a chronicler, not only with merchandise, but with weapons, and though the sea was calm, many a good ship went down, not through being dashed against the rocks, but from the violence of the enemy's attack. At last the Normans gathered together a fleet of two hundred ships and defiantly sailed through the Channel and Bay of Biscay, hoping that through their immense numbers they would cut off the Gascon-Wine fleet on its way to England. A fierce sea-fight followed off Saint-Mahy and Brittany, in which fortune favored the smaller fleet that the Gascons with their English allies had been able to bring together against the Norman armada. Many French ships with a rich booty were captured and a vast number of French seamen perished miserably in the fight. The complaints of the defeated crews soon reached the ears of King Philip, who promptly sent to Edward to exact reparation for the injury inflicted by his subjects. Edward's answer was a characteristic one, The King of England, he said, was a sovereign prince. His courts were subject to no earthly superior. If any man complained of injury done by subjects of the English king, let him come before the English courts with his grievances, and due justice should be done to him. But this high style was mere bravado, for Edward knew quite well that as Duke of Gascony, his court had no such sovereignty as he claimed for it. He abated his pretensions so far that he suggested that if Philip were not contented with the opening of the English courts to his aggrieved subjects, the dispute might be settled by arbitration or by a personal interview between the two kings. Philip contemptuously brushed aside all Edward's proposals of compromise and cited his vassal to appear before his Parliament at Paris to answer for the wrongs inflicted by his men on the subjects of his overlord. Even before the day assigned, the Constable of France appeared with an armed force on the Gascon frontier. Edward paid no heed to Philip's summons, and after some delay, Philip went down in person to the parliament pronounced the Duke of Aquitaine contumacious, and declared his duchy forfeited for his treason. A fierce and bloody conflict seemed inevitable. For more than twenty years Edward had steered clear of a great continental war. He was of no mind to be involved in one, at a time when his best efforts were needed to secure his position in Scotland, and when the prospects of leading a crusade seemed less hopeless than usual. While sending the valiant John of St. John with a strong force to protect Gascony from invasion, he still strove by negotiation to avoid the dangers of a long conflict. Edward sent his brother Edmund of Lancaster to Paris to try and bring about an accommodation. Edmund's wife's daughter was the queen of Philip the Fair. And both she and the widowed queen of Philip the Hardy had powerful influence over Philip. Moreover, Edmund himself had everything to gain by peace, as his wife's dowry in Champagne would inevitably follow the fate of Gascony were war to be declared. In conjunction with the two queens, Edmund patched up terms of reconciliation by which Philip's honor was to be satisfied by the surrender of six Gascon castles and the admittance of one French official into each of the rest of the strong places of Edward's fief as a sign of formal possession, while a proper investigation was to be made and reasonable compensation offered for the injuries done by the sailors of Bayonne and Bordeaux to the French. There was further talk of a marriage between the widowed Edward and the French king's sister, which was to be the badge and token of a complete restoration of the ancient friendship. The six castles were surrendered, and John of St. John sold off his military stores and left Gascony. But Philip's ministers were much too astute for the sanguine and confident Earl of Lancaster. The French king now declared with barefaced treachery, that he had never consented to the arrangements made by the two queens on his behalf. In vain the peers of France backed up the rights of their comrade, the Duke of Aquitaine, against the grasping despot. Gascony was invaded, and Edward's loyal acceptance of the treaty had deprived him of all means of resistance. The whole duchy passed without so much as a blow being struck into the hands of the French. Edmund, in great disgust, left his son-in-law's court. Trickery and lying had got the better of straightforward and honest diplomacy. Edward was overreached, and the war which he had made such sacrifices to avert burst forth with redoubled violence. Edward now set his diplomatists to work and soon built up a formidable alliance against the grasping Philip. At the head of this great confederation was the new king of the Romans, the strenuous but poor and powerless Adolf of Nassau, just raised to the German throne through the unwillingness of the electors to encourage hereditary succession by the choice of the son of Rudolf of Habsburg. Adolf realized even more fully than Rudolf had done The dangers with which French aggression menaced the kingdom of Arles and the whole of those western regions of the empire, which, with their French tongue and sympathies, were rapidly becoming drawn under the influence of the French crown. The foremost prince of Christendom did not scruple to take the pay of the English king and serve as a mercenary in his hosts. With Adolf came all the princes of the empire who adhered to his party, having at their head the Archbishop of Cologne. Still closer reasons of fear drew the Netherlandish princes to the English side, including Count Guy of Flanders, among the subjects of the French king, and the Counts of Holland and Brabant, among the imperial vassals. The heir of Brabant had already been married to one of Edward's daughters, and now another daughter was wedded to the eldest son of the Count of Holland. The still-living friendship between Edward and his Savoyard kinsmen gave special importance to the hot championship of the English cause by Count Amadeus the Great of Savoy. Another timely marriage with one of Edward's daughters drew the Count of Barre into the great confederacy. The fierce hatred of the King of Aragon to the French lords of Naples secured him also for the alliance. Philip on his side was scarcely less active and almost as successful. The dispute about Guienne bade fair to divide Europe into two great camps— Contemporaries were reminded of the old struggle of John of England and Philip Augustus. It was believed that another battle of Bouvine might well be fought. Edward trusted much to his foreign allies, but he trusted more to the goodwill of his English subjects. These were the years in which Edward's constant recourse to his subjects' pockets brought about, as we have seen, the permanent establishment of the Parliament of the Three Estates. Much indignation was excited by the extraordinary demands which Edward, in his supreme necessities, laid upon every order of his people. The chroniclers tell us with infinite disgust how the king's officers searched the uttermost corners of the realm for money. They spared neither a priest nor a monk, they broke open every money chest, they ransacked the towers and belfries of the churches, and did not even leave unvisited the very lazar houses where the poorest and wretchedest of the king's subjects dragged out their hopeless and weary life of pain and suffering. Two unpopular classes felt most severely the stress of the national effort. These were the French monks who fattened on English soil in those alien priories which depended on foreign houses of religion, and the foreign merchants whose debts were collected in the king's name and whose merchandise was confiscated. But the English clergy who could not fight were also expected to exceed all the laity in liberality. The ecclesiastics were at the moment peculiarly defenceless through the vacancies in the papacy and in the archbishopric of Canterbury. Edward at last demanded a half of the whole year's revenue of every beneficed churchman. The unlucky clerks were smitten with terror, and as the king raged and stormed before the assembled convocation, the dean of St. Paul's dropped down dead with fright. By such violence, men and money were gathered together, and a general muster was ordered to assemble at Portsmouth in September 1294, whence the army, with the king at its head, was to take ship for Gascony. But the extraordinary claims of Edward had done something to check his subjects' loyalty. What business was it of plain Englishmen, they might ask, whether Gascony was ruled by Edward or Philip? The French king's best hopes rested in the disaffection which Edward's strong and imperious policy had excited within Britain itself. His main trust lay in the Scots and the Welsh. King John of Scotland had attended Edward's Parliament and promised him help against the French, but even Balliol's sluggish soul had been stirred to indignation by Edward's encouragement of his Scottish subjects to appeal from the decisions of the local courts to the court of the overlord at Westminster. This was a new and unexpected result of Edward's admitted position as feudal superior of Scotland. To Edward it seemed reasonable enough that Scots should appeal to London, just as Gascon's appeal to Paris. But to the Scots, who were not litigants, Edward's reception of the appeals clearly gave the lie to his constant declaration that he claimed no rights over Scotland which were not based on ancient custom. On King John's return from the English Parliament, he was subjected to the same treatment by the Scottish barons which the Parliament of Oxford had imposed on Henry III in 1258. A council of twelve peers was set up by whose advice John was for the future to govern. This meant the transference of the government of Scotland into the hands of the worst enemies of Edward's policy. In 1295, a formal alliance was concluded between Scotland and France. It was the first beginning of that memorable connection of Scotland with England's greatest enemy, which inflicted such incalculable mischief upon all Britain for the next three hundred years. Even before the alliance between the Scots and the French a threefold revolt had broken out in 1294 in Wales, where discontent with Edward's new arrangements had long been simmering. A partisan named Madoc of the stock of the last Llywelyn raised the highlands of the north, burnt Carnarvon, and posed as a native prince of Wales. In the southern parts of the principality, a youth named Malgun spread devastation throughout Cardiganshire and Carmarthenshire. While in the great marchland of Glamorgan, one Morgan broke out in rebellion against his lord Earl Gilbert of Gloucester, Edward's son in law and the foremost baron of the realm. With a heavy heart, Edward turned away from the Gascon expedition on which he had based all his hopes and betook himself at the outset of winter to North Wales. The whole work of conquest had to be done over again. Edward kept his Christmas court at Conway, and afterwards led a winter expedition amidst the snow-bound fastnesses of Snowdon. Bands of wild Welsh cut off his convoys. Beer and fresh meat proved wholly lacking, and the fastidious English army had to live as best it might on water sweetened with honey, on bread and salt meat. But the Welsh suffered real hardships. As in 1277 and 1283, all supplies were stopped from entering the mountains. By the spring, famine had brought the rebels to their knees, and Edward, having built a new castle at Beaumaris, was able to return to England in July of 1295. While he was fighting in Snowdon, the great expedition had sailed to recover Gascony under the command of the king's nephew, John of Brittany, who had, as his chief counsellor, the wise and experienced John of St. John. At the same time, a memorable step was taken in the history of the English navy by the appointment by Edward of three admirals, charged with the defense of the eastern, southern, and western coasts, respectively. The latter division included Ireland, and the Admiral of the West was a valiant Irish knight. It was high time that something was done. The French had begun the war by burning Dover, but the English retaliated by devastating Cherbourg. The Gascon expedition proved a fair success, Its appearance off the coast led to a rising against the French. The loyal fisherfolk and merchants of Bayonne joyfully welcomed back the host of their lawful duke. Bayonne became the center of a vigorous attempt to win back Gascony. But though some strong places were captured, the greater part of Gascony remained in Philip's hands. Next year, 1296, Edmund of Lancaster went to Gascony but his valor as a soldier could not outdo his weakness as a diplomatist. After failing in an attack on Bordeaux, Edmund died of sheer vexation and despair. It was clear both that Edward could not drive out Philip and that Philip could not expel Edward. The great northern alliance against France was now the mainstay of Edward's hopes but, as usual in the Middle Ages, it was easier to construct an elaborate plan than to carry out a modest one. Very little came of that boasted confederacy. The Count of Holland was murdered, and the Count of Flanders changed sides. Many of the great imperial dignitaries thought that they had done their share in the work when they had pocketed Edward's money. King Adolf himself set them a bad example by neglecting his obligations to his English ally and throwing all his scanty strength into a purely personal expedition to the east of Germany. With Adolf's march into Thuringia, the last of his grand schemes against French aggression in the Middle Kingdom faded into thin air. Edward's relations to Scotland partly explain the weakness of the campaign of 1296 on the continent and the final failure of Edmund of Lancaster. After forming a close alliance with the French, the Scots rejected all Edward's demands, misused and imprisoned the English merchants at Berwick, and threatened the English border with invasion. For a second time, Edward was forced to give up his cherished expedition to the continent to deal with his foes on British soil. Just as in 1295 the Welsh revolt had prevented him to going in person to Gascony, so now in 1296 he was obliged to betake himself to the Scottish border, leaving his brother Edmund to meet his untimely fate in the South. Balliol had been summoned to appear at Newcastle to justify his conduct before his lord. On his refusal to put in an appearance, Edward got together a great host to invade Scotland and chastise his contumacious vassal. But Edward had to cope, not only with the open hostility of the Scots, but also with the treachery of some of his own subjects. A Welsh knight from Glamorgan named Turberville, who had been taken prisoner by the French in Guienne, made common cause with his captors and was sent back to England in name, a ransomed prisoner, in reality the agent of a plot against Edward in the French interest. Turberville's plans were detected, and he himself was hanged. But he was not the only traitor. A lord of the northern border called in the Scots to his castle of Wark, and while Edward hurried up to besiege the stronghold of the traitor, seven Scottish earls burst over the western march and spread death and destruction round the walls of Carlisle. Treason was outwitted, and invasion repelled. End of Section 15 Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.